arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Hold it, hold it, hold it. We are at a point in Return to Dallas where many things are becoming evident. This guy Oswald is into a lot of things, beginning with his Marine Corps record, his communist tendencies, and his ability to speak Russian clearly just defines credibility. After offering to give radar secrets to the Soviets and renouncing his U.S. citizenship, he retains his citizenship and is allowed to easily re-enter the United States with a Russian wife. He eventually worked for the anti-communists in New Orleans while pretending to be a Marxist. This man had TV time, was filmed handing out his phony pamphlets, and worked with the CIA contacts north of New Orleans. He had an FBI number 179, spoke with agents frequently, and was seen training exiles at Bettico Creek. His employment crossed intelligence and anti-communist activities. Here we are in October 1963. If you lived during that time period, you were going about your business, going to school, going to work, while all this is going on in the background, Lee Harvey Oswald suddenly moves to Dallas. All we saw at the media after the assassination was the communist front that had been put up by certain people. Combined with the rifle and the shells left on site and the death of Dallas policeman J.D. Tippett, Lee Oswald was toast. Return to Dallas, installment seven by Robert P. Fitton. Mexico City, Mexico. Saturday, September 28th, 1963. On Saturday morning, he awoke in a wide bed with mahogany posts and satin sheets. He wondered if he had died when he observed in a magnificent green garden outside a tall pane window. The room was comfortable maybe 65 degrees. His wounds had been treated. A round silver tray, covered and warm, sat on a wide teak table next to the bed. Orange juice, capped in a glass vial, had been placed alongside a dew-laden silver water pitcher. From the center of the tray, a vivid apricot's orchard scent filled the room. He sat on the edge of the bed, above a white marble fireplace, A hidden camera in a dome at the ceiling level tracked his movements. Cigarette smoke accompanied the man with glasses who had denied him the water inside the prison cell. He wore a dark sport coat, vest, and thin blue tie. His hat was in his hand. Let me tell you something about orchids. It takes 6 to 15 months for a sea pod to develop, and when one does not even know if he has a seed. The seeds are planted in little glass jars, and then another 12 months for the plant to grow perhaps one or two inches high. Many things, such as a spy network, take years to develop. I'm sure. We live in a wilderness of mirrors. He inhaled deeply on his long cigarette. Do you know who Kim Philby is, Mr. Kincaid? According to the radio, he was a Brit was a Russian spy. He nodded with a fixed, impish grin. 
Exactly right. What would you say if I received my training in counterintelligence from Kim Philby? Then I would say that you were duped. The smile appeared for a microsecond. He inhaled again. You wouldn't dupe me, would you, Mr. Kincaid? I might. I see. What if I told you that Golitsyn has you named as part of the Soviet mole penetration? Patch opened the metal cover. Steam and the aroma of bacon and a ham omelet rose across his face. I don't know any Golitsyn or anything about Soviet molds. The man put out his cigarette and lit another one immediately. Then why are you here in Mexico City chasing someone pretending to be Lee Oswald? I was told by someone identifying himself as Pilatus that I would be killed if I did not find out if Oswald was on the bus to Mexico City. He was not on the bus, and a short blonde-haired man pretended to be him and checked into the Hotel Del Comercio as Lee H. Oswald, and then prints his name as Lee Harvey after that. I'm not aware of that. He tilted his head as he took in more cigarette smoke. Thank you for telling me the truth. You see, I have a problem with your disappearing at the dam at Agua del Pueblo, Santa Clara, Cuba, in 1961. You had to have gone to Cuban intelligence after Sanchez was killed. What if I told you that Escalante has spoken with French journalists and he elaborated about your training with the Cuban intelligence services and with the KGB? I would tell you honestly, said Patch as he crunched on the bacon, that I have no recollection of that. I believe you, and I believe that they have taken control of your mind so you don't remember. It's easily done. He stood and walked over to the fireplace. He leaned his elbows on the wood mantel and again dragged on his cigarette. His brow creased. What do you know of the code name Sapphire? Patch shook his head and lifted a full fork of the omelette to his mouth. What is it? Have you been to France, Mr. Kincaid? No. What do you know of fiberglass rocketry components? I have no idea what you're talking about. Patch poured the hot coffee into the olive ceramic coffee cup. I'm being chased by a professor with a mental problem from Barton College. He tried to kill me on Friday, I'm sure of it. Not important. What do you know of the acronym CK Optimum? Nothing. I maintain, he said as he walked away from the fireplace and across the glossy white tiles, you may have been the victim of programming by someone on our side. That is possible. Patch nod on a piece of toast. Obviously, I can't remember things about my own life. True he said from the window. Who sent the false Oswald, Mr. Kincaid? And we need to know, who told you about the true nature of Oswald? Someone who wants people to believe that Oswald is a communist. Oswald farms himself out to many people. I think you know that. Why would someone pretend to be Oswald down here is a mystery to me. I know for a fact they're talking about a thin blonde man, maybe five foot six. That's the guy on the bus. He got into a heated argument 
with the Cuban consul, Eusebio Askew. He called Askew a bureaucrat, and he was told to leave. He lit another cigarette. Do you know any of the following individuals, or all of them? Robert E. Webster, Bruce Frederick Davis, Vladimir Sloboda, Libero Riccardelli, Joseph Dukanitz. I never heard of any of them. Are you sure? He asked, still at the window. I am sure. Does Escalante know of MK Ultra? I don't know what that is. Patch finished the coffee. When was the last time you saw Bill Harvey? I don't know any Bill Harvey. He slipped Patch a black and white photo of a man with huge eyes and a shell of a head, posing in a suit and smoking a cigarette. Patch debated whether to tell him about seeing this man at the party after the Dodgers game with Rosselli or at the P.O. box with Bannister. I don't know him. You did in 1961. I did. Bill made one mistake. You never become involved, even at his level, with the operators. You put people between you. I need water. I actually do believe your story about a failing memory, although I am at a loss as to who got to you. My guess is Escalante and Castro in Cuba. I don't know. What do you know of Lee Oswald? Someone knocked on the door. A pepper-haired man stepped in and slipped a file folder to the man with the glasses. Thank you, Raymond. I never met him. Patch finished the toast and orange juice as the man in the glasses read the contents of the file. At least two minutes passed and then he looked up. Did Pilatus tell you anything important about Oswald? No. You have seen Oswald? Yes. Where? New Orleans. How tall is Oswald? Five, nine, five, ten, maybe. Why do you ask? He set down the file and took off his glasses. He wiped them clean without answering the question. Do you know that Oswald lived in the Soviet Union? I didn't know that. Oh, really? Do you know Marina Praskakova? No. Very good. Very good. Do you know that before she married Oswald, Marina tried to return to the U.S. with defector Robert Webster? No, sir. Dukonitz died in the Soviet Union. I don't understand. When did you meet Pilatus? In New Orleans. Just out of the blue? His cigarette smoke billowed toward the ceiling. Who are you working with? Pilatus. You will be sent to our station in Miami. We will find out everything about you, including your time in Cuba between 1961 and 1963. Why did Pilatus want to know if Oswald was on the bus to Mexico City? What interest did he have in that knowledge? I don't know. Who do you think sent this so-called blonde-haired man to Mexico City? Pat shook his head. Well, Mr. Kincaid, what would you say if I told you that this individual met with Valery Kostikov at the Soviet consulate? What does that mean? That department 
encompasses executive action, sabotage, and assassination, then I would say that Mr. Oswald is being painted as in cahoots with the KGB killers. You are tight with Mr. Askew, aren't you, Mr. Kincaid? I don't know Askew. He stared at Patch. Then he turned and walked over to the table just before he left the room. The heavy door closed with a sharp echo, and a few moments later, somebody turned the lock. Patch moved through the lingering cigarette smoke and over to the window for some fresh air. Return to Dallas, Chapter 44. American Embassy, Mexico City, Mexico, Sunday, September 28, 1963, 6.22 p.m. They dressed Patch in a blue suit and navy tie. He left the ambassador's home late on Sunday afternoon. The pain lessened with his wounds healing. An armed guard of six marines marched him to a five-story cubicle building with thin slits and intricate panels in the facade. They walked him under a few bursting palms and he entered the building around 6.30 p.m. Two men positioned him inside a conference room and shut the door. Ten minutes later, an older lady with a waxed-pressed appearance of an aging school teacher with glasses stepped into the room. She looked extremely well organized. I am very close to Bill Harvey, Mr. Kincaid. What have you got against Bill Harvey? Nothing. Dr. Moon worked at Barton College until his resignation. She held up her gold pen and looked at Patch as if she were trying to formulate an opinion for her colleagues. What did you do to piss off Dr. Moon, Mr. Kincaid? Nothing. He just decided to travel to Mexico and shoot at you? The man has mental problems. Where is he now? Yes. Where is he now? She asked as she left and closed the large walnut door. Patch sat unrestrained in a comfortable green leather chair. He leaned toward the window pane. The purple-tinted mountains and higher peaks penetrated through the smoggy overcast. He waited for the lady with the gold pen. A group of white-uniformed Mexicans entered the room 15 minutes later. They served him steak and potatoes and a cup of espresso. As sunlight turned to twilight, the orange highlights glazed the city buildings. You have done a commendable job, Patch. He turned as a round-shouldered man with a puppy face and neatly combed light brown hair pushed open the door. His blue checkered shirt lined the edge of his sport coat. He extended his hand. Howard Hunt, how are you feeling? I'm okay, said Patch, squeezing the smooth hand. The man squinted and leaned toward his face. I just looked over photos of you taken in Miami two years ago. You look as if you've aged ten years instead of two. He studied Patch's face up close and ran his finger along the smile lines. Really? Then he placed his hand behind his sport coat. Let me cut to the chase. What are you doing down here? And what the hell have you been doing since Cuba? I don't know. He pouted as if he had just swallowed a hot pepper. Where have you been since 1961? I don't know. The man's blue eyes ignited with incredulity. Be straight with me. You really don't know who you are? Pat shook his head. A thin pretzel-faced man with straight black hair looked in the room. Patch actually did recognize Phillips from the training camp. I don't know him. Dave Phillips. Phillips then moved closer to Patch. 
You saw the pictures. They tell me this man has aged, Hunt. Why? He turned to Patch. How could you have aged, Patch? We've seen the photographs of you from 1961. You look older now. Unless somebody made you look young before. Someone in Cuban intelligence? No, Mr. Phillips. The plain fact is I just don't remember. Phillips lit a cigarette and offered one to Hunt, who turned him down. Well, we'll figure that all out later. You and your girlfriend have been tracking Oswald. Your girlfriend has had an undisclosed location, said Hunt as Patch sprang to his feet. Please sit down. She has not been harmed, I assure you. She will need considerable debriefing. The problem, Patch, is you just injected yourself into some kind of nonsense at the Cuban and Soviet consulates. Why did John Rosselli order this surveillance on Oswald? asked Phillips. I'm not sure that he did. What do you mean? I mean, he made a phone call. He may have just been an intermediary. Hunt looked at Phillips. What about Richard K. Snagel and American Express? I do not know him, he lied. Yes, you do. Richard K. Snagel is Pilatus. Why did you listen to him about coming to Mexico? Patch thought about Pilatus and could almost hear the gunshots at the bank back in El Paso. I was told if I didn't follow Oswald and report if he was on the Laredo bus, as well as check on him at the Cuban and Soviet consulate, I would be killed. Who the hell told you that? Pilatus. Well, that's bullshit, said Hunt. What a bluffer. He raced up to Patch, nose to nose. Obviously, Patch, you're aware that the man here in Mexico City is impersonating Oswald. A blonde-haired man. Phillips sprung around. Yes, a blonde-haired man. We don't know who he is. Do you? No. Do you understand what this insertion has done to operations down here? No. How are you supposed to contact Pilatus? Send my findings to 37516 Street, Los Angeles, California. Oh, said Phillips as Hunt jotted down the address. Do you know Nagel had Fair Play for Cuba committee pamphlets in his trunk in El Paso? Doesn't surprise me. The unlisted telephone number of the Cuban embassy is in his notebook. Hunt banged his fist on the table. CIA personnel from the Los Angeles office and a military ID of Oswald. Well, that's between you and Nagel. Phillips looked over at Hunt. And they locked eyes for several seconds. Then he faced Patch. What do you know about Operation Red Cap in Minsk? Why was Mikhail Plavyotsky arrested three years ago? I don't know who he is. I don't know what Red Cap is. I see, said Hunt. Funny Oswald was there at the same time. Funny about Oswald and Aquatone. I just don't know what you're talking about. We're going to be flying you out to our station in Miami later tonight. You've been there before. I have. He again looked at Hunt as if they were communicating telepathically. You will give a complete listing of Oswald's activities once you get to Miami. Okay. Okay, nothing. Unless I clear this, you mention nothing about this to anyone. I believe Pilatus's killer does not exist, and he did bluff you into coming down here. But understand this, if you open your mouth about Oswald and the man at the consulates, you will be killed. Understood? Understood. What about Moon? Hunt shrugged his shoulders and pressed his lips at the door. Well, Jesus Christ, the man is just a nut. He moved toward Patch as he had before and looked directly into Patch's eyes. You know about the Verona project? Don't know. 
I don't believe you. Hunt headed out of the room. I will talk to you before you leave, said Phillips. If you need more to eat, just let Ann know. The lady that was just in here? Correct. Phillips turned to leave. Mr. Phillips, Phillips looked around. I really don't know what happened to me. Some kind of mind control, I'm sorry. Don't be. We'll check it all out in Miami. Phillips carefully closed the walnut door behind him. Patch grabbed his water glass quickly and crossed the room. He placed the glass against the door so he could hear both Hunt and Phillips. Soviets will never let this imposter pass. It could take four months to get his clearance to travel to Russia, said Phillips clearly. Hunt's voice trickled to nearly inaudible. Russians have no idea about this either. We'll lie about it. We're expecting to be briefed by Gaudet. He was there in New Orleans when the Mexican travel card was issued. We don't need any complications. What we need is an operation like we had in Guatemala. What we need is to be on the air like the voice of Liberatio. And we need to inundate the country with articles and opinion for the big event. That was almost ten years ago and not in the U.S. Have your people ready. Call the consulates tomorrow. Get a hold of any phone transcripts and we'll reconstruct all the calls. Let's find out what these people are thinking. I want all the photographs sanitized and make sure Rosselli can't even take a leak without us knowing about it. What about Sylvia Duran and the Cuban consulate? She has described Oswald as a sharp blonde man, inelegantly dressed. When this man is done, we'll call the Mexicans and rework the whole thing. Askew knows this was staged for his benefit. And he's going back to Cuba and will be gone. The imposter set up a phony tirade, plain and simple. Duran must also be aware that this is a strange situation. Rough her up if she gets out of line. Hunt said something Patch could not hear. Then he spoke again. And the Russians hung up on him. Maybe you like to rough up Department 13, too, asked Phillips, chuckling. I think I'll pass on that one. Let's review this. He was first told by the Cuban consulate that he needed to get photos of himself. Next, Duran told him he had to get a Soviet visa. And then was when he blew up at Askew. And it was the last time he was there. That is correct. We'll have Juan Arias' testimony later about the money offered. For at least a minute, a few minor noises were interrupted by distant conversation. Then Phillips said something to the older lady. How many phone calls today, Ann? Three to the Cuban consulate, five to the Soviet. I'm cleaning up the transcripts right now. Good. I want to hear our phone calls to the consulates when I get back from Washington with the tapes. Then Hunt's voice was clearer than before. And review Leopoldo and Angel with that audio woman at the Summerfield Apartments in Dallas. And that Leon the crazy nut. They should have checked before going over there at this time. The Attorney General is using Angel for surveillance of the exiles and the Cubans. Angel has fed everything back to the Attorney General, including Oswald working for the FBI. What about the FPCC? They know about the leaflets. I think they've made headway into penetrating and embarrassing that organization. Too many exiles have access to confidential things that should just be left in the Internal Operations Division. IOD in Dallas is a very small circle. And Nobody is talking. I'm heading to Washington for the bulk material. Kincaid will be under armed guard during my questioning on the plane. Good luck. Return to Dallas, Chapter 45. 
Over the Gulf, Sunday, September 29th, 1963, 11.15 p.m. Hunt, despite the soldiers up front, all armed and in combat fatigues, remained remarkably sociable once the jet left Mexico City. He sat on the white sofa in the alcove's track lighting near the portal window. The jet engines whooshed as they climbed higher into the night sky. He handed Patch a ginger ale with ice. Do you understand the dragnet from Havana to Los Angeles for you, Patch? Patch sipped on the carbonated bubbles. Well, Mr. Hunt, I can honestly tell you that I know you, but I don't. Same with David Phillips. I'm assuming someone got inside my head. I think that is a correct assumption. Have you ever read The Manchurian Candidate by Richard Condon? No. Condon wrote it four years ago. The man is brainwashed. He becomes a programmed assassin for a communist conspiracy. Patch, that's what I think Castro and his intelligence men, or even the KGB, did to you in 1961. I believe you when you say you don't remember me or Dave Phillips. Mr. Hunt, I don't want to kill anyone. Not now, but it's like the communists using Sergeant Lovett as a sleeper agent. He becomes a killer when seeing the Queen of Diamonds playing card simply by playing solitaire. I don't feel like a killer. You don't have to, only with the trigger. What is the trigger and who am I going to kill? How do I know you're not working for Department 13? What is that? Is Department 13 defunct? I don't know what it is. Are you against a preemptive nuclear strike against the Soviet Union? Why would you ask me that? I mean, if we could gain the advantage, have you discussed the pluses and the minuses? I have no opinion on that. Are you in correspondence with Thomas Merton? No. Have you not read Peace in the Post-Christian Era? No. Merton would leave us defenseless for Christ's sake. I don't know Merton. If an American president were assassinated by the Soviet Union, would you think that provocation enough? Patch said nothing and looked out the portal window. Okay, let's change the subject. Fine. Khrushchev is leading Kennedy down the primrose path. Did you meet Malinovsky, the Russian defense minister, when you were in Cuba? Khrushchev confined his appointment to a small cadre of people, Patch. I don't remember being in Cuba. They sent in 42 missiles, correct? I have no idea. Hunt leaned toward him. Each of those missiles, Patch, has a range of 2,000 kilometers. Four or five could go 4,000 kilometers. Wipe out the whole goddamn east coast of your country. I know nothing about this. You worked with General Plyev, recommended by Malinovsky. No. Castro gave his approval. Patch stood up. Just stop this crap, okay? I was never working for Castro or any of them. I just don't remember. Castro wanted to launch a preemptive strike on us, didn't he? Patch said nothing as he sat down and looked out the portal window at the stars. We've already diminished our strength with this test band crap. What do you know about Vietnam, Patch? Patch closed his eyes when he was bothered by what Hunt said. What the hell is the matter with you? Vietnam is in Asia. Last Friday, the president issued National Security Action Memorandum number 263. Hunt's eyes lit up. 1,000 goddamn troops are being removed from Vietnam. Not added, removed. 
how am I supposed to know this? Think back, Patch. From your reaction, I can tell somebody's got into your head. It may even be our people. Someone, I agree. When Lodge got to Vietnam, Patch, the Vietnamese general started talking about overthrowing Diem. Do you think that'll happen? How would I know that? Lodge was ordered by Kennedy not to get involved in the coup against Diem. Is Kennedy talking to Castro about this? Mr. Hunt, I have no idea what you're talking about. He opened his thin black briefcase and retrieved several sheets of paper. I have in my hands patch Drew Pearson's column of October 21st. We know before anyone knows what he'll say. Pearson is predicting Kennedy will go to Moscow because Kennedy, Russ, and Stevenson have talked to Tito. They are talking about us becoming good friends with the Russians. Do you have any idea how vulnerable we're going to become? No. Kennedy is going to take our Jupiter missiles out of Turkey, and he already has blocked General Lemitzer from implementing Operation Northwoods. What's that? You and Escalante know exactly what Northwoods is. No. Or maybe you know more of Merton. Depth and humanity, and a certain totality of self-forgiveness and compassion, not just for individuals, but for men as a whole, and a deeper sense of dedication. That kind of gibberish will get us all killed. You're putting too much into this kind of thinking, Mr. Hunt. Oh, really? I listened to Kennedy at American University, calling our weapons idle stockpiles. Peace, he says. Kennedy is a dreamer in the middle of the fight for our own survival. Hunt took a respectable swig of scotch and smacked his lips. He looked outside the jet. He's pissed off a lot of American patriots. JM Wave Headquarters, former site of the Richmond Naval Air Station, Monday, September 30th, 1963, 7.30 a.m. The helicopter began its descent toward a building cluster south of Miami. As the grass blades fluttered, at least a dozen people gathered around the pad, etched round in the lawn. Hunt gazed into the sunlight and tightened his seatbelt as they reached treetop level. Let's see if you recognize anyone out here, Patch. There's someone very close to you. You mean Sherry Thomas? No. Someone who was with you in 1961, the last person to see you alive in Cuba. And who might that be? You tell me. I don't remember. I honestly don't. One thing I don't understand, you look older. You had no background to begin with. This is, this is bizarre. The helicopter rocked into place on the pad. Okay, my friend, let's go. The outside staircase popped open. At the bottom of the stairs, three men in suits and a dark-haired man smoking a stubby cigar. The man had a certain familiarity. Minkowitz. Minkowitz slapped his shoulder and glanced at the other men. Gee, he knows me. Hastings, Hastings Mountain, said Patch. The dilation experiments. I don't know what that is, Patch. Because it hasn't happened yet. Mankiewicz squinted and looked Patch over more closely. Where did you go back to, Patch? Look, Mankiewicz, I... Ray! Ray, I appeared on this riverbank in Spokane in the dead of night. My friend is from Spokane. 
but they have her somewhere. I think Howard knows about that. Howard Joanides, he's handling some of the exiles. I've heard about him. Look, Patch, I'm the only one here who understands all this. You were probably sent back by Alexander Moon, the moon of the future, because the moon of now, the scientist that worked for me, wants to kill you. I understand, he said as they walked under the palms. Listen, Patch, we're meeting with high-level military and intelligence people this morning. You have generated yourself as a person of high interest. But I don't understand why my memory was selectively removed. If I've come back here for a reason, then I need to know what's going on. You're damn right, said Mankiewicz. Be aware, Patch. They think I'm crazy, but they tolerate me. Everyone thinks time dilation is bullshit. A light-haired man with dark rimmed glasses and a group of men in suits moved toward them. Let's get them over to the main building, Ray, said the man with glasses. He shook Patch's hand. Shackley, it's been a few years, Patch. Patch pressed his lips and shook his head. Right. A shorter man with glasses stepped around the back of the group. Patch remembered him as Barnes at Bettico Creek. Patch's thoughts then centered on the Bettico Creek training camp and Italian rifles from Maryland. He watched two military men walking toward another helicopter. Who are they? asked Patch. Generals Lansdale and Cabell, said Mankiewicz. Lansdale was the chief of the intelligence division in the Pacific during World War II. Cabell was just fired by Kennedy after the Bay of Pigs. They're here on another matter. Hunt stepped between them. So, the reason the Bay of Pigs failed was that the original promise made by Eisenhower was not kept by the subsequent administration. It allowed hostile air to wipe out the approaching invasion force. Patch, for an instant, thought back to images of huge planes and jets in the sky near a swamp. Then he looked at the generals again as they entered the helicopter. They think you're an enigma, Patch, said Mankiewicz. When exactly did you show up in Spokane? said Shackley, returning to Patch. Patch's head snapped back. End of July. I don't remember anything except being chased by Moon in the fog. But he wasn't in Spokane. I was alone on the rocks overlooking the river. When I saw Moon again, he'd been shot dead in Las Vegas by security at the Thunderbird Hotel. Moon was trying to kill me. Right. We need to know what you've been doing since the Bay of Pigs. I understand, but my memory is blocked. You may be a victim of Castro brainwashing. We'll get to the bottom of it, said Shackley. Then they all started walking again and reached the edge of the grass. Who decided that you should start the surveillance of Oswald? Who did Rosselli talk to? asked Shackley. Patch thought about Rosselli and his connections. I can't answer that without a lawyer present. Oh, bullshit, said Hunt. You'll answer when we tell you to. You're always such a wise-ass, Patch. An elongated white clapboard building with a pediment and columns up the front was now visible across the lawn. Scrubby pines framed the roof. Patch vaguely remembered the dormer windows and the line of first and second story windows inserted with air conditioning units. They passed under the palms at the columns and then stepped into the cooler air. Hunt and Shackley moved up the steps into the building. Patch, you best answer the questions down here when they ask them. Mr. Mankiewicz, I can't. If you don't start calling me Ray, I'll be the one shooting you, not Moon. 
Okay, Ray. And I like Cuban cigars. Mankiewicz motion patched through the swinging doors and they entered a long yellow room, probably a cafeteria with laminated tables. Be seated. Kincaid, said Hunt as he walked into the room. I don't have to tell you how dangerous things are with Cuba. We were almost blown off the face of the earth because of the Soviet intrusion. Your buddies... That's not what I'm told. That right? He asked, shaking his head. There are individuals on both sides who are violent and wanting revenge for their side. People such as Oswald are trying to decipher just who's doing what. Lee Henry Oswald is a partisan of Fidel and an admitted Marxist. An activist for the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. What the hell are you sticking your nose into this for? I honestly can't tell you. You're being used, said Shackley. Even you must suspect that Rosselli only cares about doing somebody a favor. Why Oswald? asked Hunt. Oswald was finding out what both sides were doing. I don't know the game in Mexico. Well, that's classified. But in New Orleans, was he ever with Castro people? I don't think so. No, the other side. Who? No. What if something happened to President Kennedy, Patch? asked Hunt, holding his shoulder. How would you feel if you didn't talk to us about that? Patch froze and held his temples. He closed his eyes. Extreme anxiety filled his gut. Oh, what now, Kincaid? Kennedy. Big Kennedy or little Kennedy? asked Hunt in a loud whisper. Something wrong. Wrong. Ah, oh, Jesus Christ, said Hunt, stepping back. What happened in Cuba? Who got to you? Maybe they programmed you to kill Kennedy. Do they know about Task Force W? I don't remember anything about Cuba or Force W. Somebody has put something about Kennedy in your head. No, or removed it. I know the man you call your father has been with the U2 project all along. He's on his way from Japan. We're not going through this ridiculous bullshit with radios like we did in Miami. Dad? <laughs> Another bullshit story. Like you're older than your father. I have no recollection of my life. I don't need spies. I really don't. We have a medical team here to understand what's going on inside your head, Kincaid. Dr. Cameron, Patch's stomach jolted. No, no, not Cameron. Ha, ah, you remember Cameron. Hunt leaned forward again. You had a cover story in 61 about saving American cities in 86. I didn't believe that dribble then, and I don't believe it now. I always thought that someone was handling you, Patch. You will tell us. You're remembering, aren't you, Patch? Asked Minkowitz. Patch nodded, but was afraid to tell them what he now knew. American cities were threatened by nuclear terrorists. How Hastings Mountain was a time dilation project. He was brought back by accident to 1961. And Mankiewicz, Hunt, Phillips, Kate, he was engaged. To Kate. I'll talk to you both later, said Hunt as he quickly left the room. This way, Patch, said Mankiewicz. A dark-haired man who looked as if he were a matinee idol smoked a cigarette as he walked in, sat on an oak desk. That is Dr. Richard Feynman. Why is he here? asked Patch. We brought him in to obtain funding for the Barton College dilation research. Mankiewicz grabbed Patch's arm and steered him toward Feynman. Feynman pinched the cigarette between his fingers. Dr. Feynman, this is uh, Patch Kincaid. Feynman looked him over with a half grin. Ah, the man with a story. 
I think you'll find this talk interesting, Mr. Kincaid. I'm sure I will. I attended a lecture you gave, Doctor, said Mankiewicz, in December 1959 at Caltech about nanotechnology. You talked about shrinking and writing. Feynman made use of gestures and flamboyant metaphors as he spoke. That's what they did to me. I'm afraid we're far from that technology, Mr. Kincaid. But someday we will, added Mankiewicz. If Patch says it's nanotechnology, then we look into it. Why not? Chapter 46 JM Wave Headquarters, Miami, Florida, Monday, September 30th, 1963, 5.45 p.m. Three hours after removing a vial of dark blood from Patch's arms, four technicians led by a curly-haired man named Bloom entered an upstairs lounge with flowery wallpaper. Across the room, a brick fireplace separated long windows overlooking an isolated area outside. Dr. Feynman had agreed to lend some thoughts about time, irreversibility. Mankiewicz stood at the wood podium, and after a few introductory remarks about Feynman's career, he faced Feynman, smoking a cigarette at the fireplace. Einstein said, The distinction between past, present, and future is only an illusion, albeit a persistent one. What do you say, Dr. Feynman? Feynman puffed on the cigarette, put it out in the mantel ashtray, and then began to pace in front of the large, portable black chalkboard. Mankiewicz crossed the room toward Patch near the windows and back. What happens in our everyday world? You drop a cup and it breaks. You can sit there forever for the pieces to come together and jump back into your hand. Your military man might miss the Army-Navy game in November. As the men chuckled, Patch looked out the window. The Florida wetlands with the gnarled trees and the thick scrub brush looked remarkably familiar. He assumed he had probably been here in 1961. What is it, Patch? asked Mankiewicz in a low voice. Patch squinted as Feynman continued. I think I was here before. You were. I was here with you. It's all block ray. Many things in nature are time reversible, Feynman counted on his thumb. Gravity, electricity, magnetism, for example? He's correct. Certain forces are time reversible. I understand. In theory, there are ways to reverse a well-constructed bubble. It will take years of research. My approach would be to convince the military. Why the military? To get the cash for the research. Are you in a position to build a time dilation chamber, Ray? Minkowitz closed his eyes and shook his head. Not right now. I don't have all the components yet. Nor have I even identified the damn particles. Patch looked back to Feynman at the chalkboard. Here is a wheel with notches beveled up and down, connected via a small piece to prevent backward motion. A spring holds this in place. Listen to this analogy, Patch. The teeth get jammed so the wheel can only turn in one way. Let's insert an inner tube with four veins. With an inconsistent molecular beam applied to the veins, the wheel goes one way, he said, turning toward the fireplace. And then again, he said as he faced the blackboard, it could go this way. What we have here is like your broadcast via radio swan. Perpetual jamming. The group laughed, but Mankiewicz was serious. Worries me that Alexander Moon followed you back. That attack in Mexico City had to be the mood of 1963. The wheel thus 
Feynman said, moving the chart back and forth on the board, goes perpetually back and forth. Why? Because the ratchet wheel is irreversible. The wheel will go backward, Patch, because of the imbalance in temperature. Minkowitz pressed his lips together and nodded. The inner tube bounces up and down and bounces up, said Feynman. Friction thus results in heat. The veins move strangely. The machine is no longer one way. The other vein is cooler, and the tube connecting falls inclined on the notches, and our forward wheel is now going backward. Minkowitz spoke in a low voice. Believe with the proper use of subatomic particles and energy forming a bubble, I can send a man back in time inside that bubble. It's looking like more and more that's what happened to me. I'd bet my box of Havana cigars on it. A glacier, my friends, crumbled to the sea. In the level of the micro world, it is constructed of hexagonal ice crystals. If I knew more about those crystals, I would know more about glacial movement. If a system of tubes could be constructed at the subatomic level, it could translate into the movement back through time, the retrograde. That takes too many years with too many people working at the problem, Ray. But you've given me hope that it can be done, Patch. Let me address the many worlds theory before Professor Mankiewicz brings it up, said Feynman as they turned back to Mankiewicz. Mankiewicz cleared his throat. I won't get into Schrodinger's cat. Thank you very much. The many worlds theory is a quantum interpretation. Many worlds says that all possible histories and futures are real. That idea, of course, is a ludicrous idea. I prefer to say that all things happen in the same space at different times. Well, why does time flow at all? Things go from order to disorder, commonly called entropy then you're saying that time is irreversible. Feynman raised his brows and paced again. No, of course not. Minkowitz moved his hands and shook his head. One thing Dr. Moon has demonstrated is the possibility of building a perpetual motion machine, creating dampers that retrograde, if you will, after the energy of reversal diminishes. I accept some things because they are not proven, but I am open-minded. Bloom in his white uniform stepped into the hall. We just looked at his blood in the microscope and everything looks fine. Problem is, when we looked at his blood under the electron microscope, we saw particles at the atomic level. Particles that should not be there. Nanoparticles, said Feynman. I don't even know how these particles are in his blood. How can they be in there without killing him? JM Wave Headquarters, Miami, Florida, Wednesday, October 2nd, 1963. Los Angeles Dodgers left-handed pitcher Sandy Koufax sets a World Series record by striking out 15 New York Yankees in a 5-2 victory in Game 1 at Yankee Stadium. Koufax is one hell of a pitcher, said Mankiewicz. He sat across from Patch at the end of a table in the busy cafeteria. 15 in a World Series game is unbelievable. Patch. This may be the only place we can talk. It's noisy and the rest of them are gone. They're going to kill you. You've stuck your nose into some kind of operation. I know that. You believe me, don't you, Ray? I do. 
that's when I returned from that prison camp in Cuba. I kept all that time travel stuff to myself. I'd be eaten alive by the powers to be. Two years ago, you knew how when I was going out with my wife, before we were married, I introduced her as my wife. My mother-in-law sent me a letter and I burned it. There was no way you could have known that I referred to her as my wife. I had to have found out that information in another timeline. I think so. I ended up in Vermont and then down in Maryland with you at the college. That's correct. I remember the whole damn thing. <laughs> I drew a gun on you. Why have I come back again, Ray? I don't know. And I don't know if we can figure it out. You have to get out of here. Because you stuck your nose into the Oswald New Orleans operation. An officer named John Tilton is en route as we speak. He will lead the debriefing and then they'll kill you. I see your point. Army Intelligence. Paul Granby. Do you know him? asked Patch. Makewood shook his head. No, but Army Intel wants you dead too, Patch. I've been chased at, shot at, and I worry about my friend, Sherry Thomas, the school teacher. She's fallen off the face of the earth. Makewood's leaned forward. Listen up, Patch. Those mob people, they're all your buddies, because we tracked down Carlos. Something happened. Something really bad, Ray, because Carlos died. I shot him dead at the dam. Can't access those memories. You fought him atop the dam before that, said Mankiewicz, his eyes watering. You told me you were trying to stop Sanchez so he wouldn't destroy American cities in 1986. Nothing wrong with saving millions of lives, said Patch. Carlos Sanchez was the focal point in time. Damn it, said Mankiewicz, loud enough for people to turn around. He lowered his voice, and I shot the bastard. We have to contact those organized crime guys and have them get you the hell out of here. Especially Johnny Rosselli. He sucked you into this whole Oswald surveillance. I fear for your life, Patch. Then he leaned toward Patch. This is what I've subtly picked up, Patch. They feel that you're privy to something big called Pathfinder. Pathfinder? I have no idea. It's not even on any intel, said Mankiewicz, choking up. Patch, I don't think you were in prison in Cuba. I think you were retrograded ahead in time, and you lived a few years. I have no idea how you got back here, but I think it involves Alexander Moon. I was at a table, selling something in a park. Cars went by, grass all around, high buildings. I remember talking to people. There were tourists there. You must have sold something to the tourists. That would make sense, Ray, but there were government people after me. Wait, wait. They chased me to this high tower above the park. A guy named Nick got me out of a cart. We were on a motorcycle and then a car. An accident. Keep trying to remember. They flew me by jet. To moon? Patch slowly looked up, tightening his face. Yes. Hong Kong. Time dilation. I knew it, exclaimed Mankiewicz. Listen, Patch, you talk to no one about this except me. Patch nodded. What about the moon at this time period? You said moon had problems. Mankiewicz held his cigar out as he pressed his lips. Moon worked at SOD in Maryland. He inadvertently ingested LSD at a town in France. 
One of our guys jumped out a window in New York City because of LSD. LSD wrecked Moon's head. He's a very bright man with psychological problems brought on by our own experiments. LSD is a mind-altering drug. Yes, it creates altered thinking processes, anxiety, paranoia, delusions. Add that to what I think happened to you. Time travel. Yes, Moon probably chased you back because you went back without his permission. I can't figure it all out. But the relevant thing is that he got to the moon of, of this era, and that Alexander Moon's mind is just as warped because of the experiments in France. Only your contacts can get you out of here, Patch. I have Johnny Rosselli's personal number in my head. Minkwitz nodded. Handsome Johnny. Smart move. Minkwitz lit a cigar red and puffed in the smoke billowed. Give it to me. 741905 in Los Angeles. Good, good, said Minkwitz, holding the cigar out as he leaned back within the cafeteria noise. You know, Patch, I need a vacation out of here. Me too, Ray, said Patch, grinning. He liked Minkowitz and wondered if he had been friends with him in the past or in the future. Minkowitz's plugging in the pieces convinced him he had come from the future. One thing concerns me, Patch, and it goes back to what we're upstairs, about making that tooth wheel rock back and forth. That's the theory, and what happened to you at the dam? You were retrograded into the future, and now you're back, two and a half years from that dam. Incredible, so it'll happen again. Exactly. Depends on the variable. When you pass through the embarkation chamber and how it was built, I don't know any of that. Not very encouraging, Ray. How will I know? theory is that everything will slow down initially. Light will be muted and shaded. You won't be able to break through the dimensional barrier patch. What do you mean? For instance, if you're walking in the bubble, in theory, you'd be precisely 11.11 .11 centimeters from the matter outside your area of the bubble. Everything outside would slow down. And where does this bubble come from? It's like a bubble of space surrounding you back from the original energy source in the future. Then I must be in it now. You are, but the bubble dimension is like any other dimension, immeasurable in this reality. I need to put my thinking cap on. Somehow you change history and that's why you're back here. I need to figure it out, why you change history. I don't care if it takes me 50 years, Patch, I'll figure it out. So, the retrograde occurs when the energy tightens. The energy levels cause it to bulge back again, and there's no way to measure the other dimensions here in 1963. Patch gazed out the windows. What about Sherry, my girlfriend? Would she be brought back too? I'm not sure. If she were with you, maybe. In the future, you were obviously brought to a point where the chamber was duplicated by Moon. And that Moon was chasing you. Moon constructed the chamber? That would make sense, Patch. How he got that knowledge in the future, I don't know. And those nanoparticles have been totally effective in blocking you from remembering anything. Yet, he followed you back in time. Ray, I honestly don't remember. I know, I know. What about Rosselli and getting me out? Minkwood stuck the cigar between his teeth. Well, Patch, my friend, I can only say that I'll take care of it. Chapter 47 Location Unknown Dallas, Fort Worth, Texas Wednesday, October 9, 1963 9 a.m.
Inside what they called the safe house, Sherry had read the bond paperback on the slip-covered sofa. The outside bushes prevented her from seeing the street from the couch, but she always heard the cars. A constant variety of people entered and exited the house at odd hours. Of all the exiles, only Rico spoke to her on a regular basis. Rico always looked uneasy with the gruff, aggressive anti-Castro Cubans who shouted out orders and pushed each other. They used Rico as a gopher and an observer of her movements around the house. Manuel had a guard stationed out the front door. He threatened her and Patch with death should she try to escape. In the background, the leather-cased transistor radio's news broadcast began. Good morning, Dallas, Fort Worth. News from the nation's capital. WPAT News has been told this morning that Texan Bobby Baker will resign his position as Secretary of the Senate. An investigation has begun by the Republican-led Senate Rules Committee in September, probing into Baker's business and political activities. Allegations include congressional bribery, using money and arranging favors in exchange for votes and government contracts. The financial collusion in awarding government contracts has great implications. Bobby Baker was the secretary to former Senator Lyndon B. Johnson, the Senate Majority Leader at the time. Vice President Johnson could not be reached for comment. Several cars arrived out front. Sherry turned from the window. What's going on, Rico? Freedom for Cuba party. They're meeting here today. Exiles? Rico looked outside, then nodded. Alpha 66 is organizing this. The exiles you see coming in going are members of Alpha 66. You hear a lot. They think I'm just some stupid cook, man. You have a photographic memory. The door crashed open and Rico reached up to the cabin in the kitchen. Lawrence, said Rico. Oh, shit. You said a fat-faced mustached Cuban with focused black eyes. He wore a t-shirt and olive military pants. I have a few questions. Rico, in the kitchen, twisted off the little radio's volume control. Do you want me to leave, Lawrence? I have an appointment later, so get her in the damn car once the meeting starts. Lawrence's deep eyes had the ferocity of a starving pack dog. He brought a chair into the big room from the kitchen table and turned it around. Then he faced Sherry. Your boyfriend was seen outside the Cuban and Soviet consulates. There was some shooting. Oh, God, no. Stop your whining. The Americans took him away. No one is telling us where he is being held. She closed her eyes. I knew this would happen. Never mind that shit, he growled. An intelligence agent shot up that bank in El Paso. You were right there. We were. I think you met with this man before. His name was Richard Case Nagel. Patch and I were shopping downtown when that bank was robbed. I don't know anybody by that name. Lawrence removed his 45 from the holster. What name do you know him by? I don't. Don't fuck with me, lady. Why did Oswald want to go to Mexico? We received an envelope with instructions in New Orleans. You're lying, shouted Lawrence. This is bullshit. Lawrence kicked the chair and headed for the door. Rico moved from the kitchen like water trickling out of a faucet. Are you all right, Miss Thomas? Lawrence is an assassin. Outside, the goateed skip 
began making an impassioned speech in the back of the truck on a portable public address speaker. Many of the exiles had gathered around. And because of this, and other reasons that are quite apparent to us all, I swear to you that I shall not stop my fight until our hemisphere is wiped clean of every conspirator, every one-world traveler, every socialist, and every communist. And when it's all over, and we, the American people, have won our country back from the Eisenhowers and the Three K Brothers and all the other one-world thinkers and socialists and murdering communists, I want some questions answered. I want to know who. Who are the traitors of our great and beloved country, the United States of America? I want to know how. How could they betray the very things that our fathers and their forefathers and their forefathers before them fought and died for in order to hand down to their children and to their children's children the sacred heritage of our great America. The American people mad. What does it take to wake the American people up? Does it take your wives raped in your presence? Does it take that your children are sent to communist indoctrination schools? Does it take trials in your own ballparks? Well, if it does, forget it. For this is communism. And not one country in the last 28 years has fought out from under communism. And then the CIA let two unarmed cargo planes take off and fly over Cuba. One of them was a C-54 with four Americans on board, and the other one was a C-46 with three Americans on board. These two planes with seven Americans were lost over Cuba and shot down by artillery and aircraft. If they had have had the air support that was promised by the Kennedy and Eisenhower administration alike, they would be alive today. So I thereby hold Kennedy responsible for the deaths of those seven Americans that were murdered by reason of not having air support that the Kennedy and Eisenhower administration had promised that they had to... Rico closed the door and briefly held her wrist. They have no toleration when they don't get their way. They have certain goals and will do what they need to do. Who is Patch? My friend, my close friend. I see. She reached into her pocketbook and opened her wallet to the picture of her and Patch in Jackson Square in New Orleans. This was in August. Rico studied the photo. You are a good-looking couple. Thanks, she said as she put her wallet back inside the pocketbook. Rico! Rico! said Lawrence. He threw a handgun and then a clip to Rico. If she tries to leave the car, kill her! Rico's dark eyes focused on her. Rico slowly stepped from the kitchen. Come with me, Miss Thomas. She took in the fresh air and sunshine. The residential track houses lined the street. She counted three cars. Vila opened the door of a beige Rambler station wagon. Rico motioned her into the passenger side and he sat behind the wheel. He kicked the door shut and crossed the lawn back to the front door. This meeting, from what I hear, will not take long. Freedom for Cuba? Correct. She folded her arms and closed her eyes in the sunshine. She reached in her pocketbook and lifted a folded napkin with the gardenia still scented inside. For a second she was with Patch, walking back in Jackson Square. Then she opened her eyes. Behind her, another car approached the house. She eyed the side mirror. 
three more Latins exited the car. So did Oswald. She remained slumped down in the car. That's Lee Oswald. Oswald had neatly trimmed hair and wore a dark sweater. He smiled as he smoked casually with a taller man with straight dark hair and brows. All four men swept across the lawn. One of them knocked on the front door. Philo appeared in the doorway and let them inside. He checked the street and then shut the door. Who's the other man? That is General Edwin Walker. He's out of the army now. I will tell you that my friend and I have been watching Oswald and reporting about his movement in New Orleans and here. We've been paid a great deal of money. Are you U.S. government? No, we did it for money. I have a lot of money, Rico. You like money, Rico? A wide smile filled his face. Of course. I have more money than any of these revolutionaries. What are you saying? Obviously, they're not going to let me break out of here. This is true. Rico's dark eyes focused on him. I can get you a lot of money when I do get out of here. Rico looked toward the house and then back down the street. A future I.O.U. Yes, it would have to be future. But I have it and I will pay you. These are serious men. What if you don't make it out? Rico, if I don't make it out, I'm not going to worry about it. What is it you want? She sat up. Oswald, for starters. What the hell is he doing here? Rico stroked his scraggly goatee. He smiled in a way that his gums were exposed above his white teeth. He could kill me if I opened my mouth. Not if you don't get caught. I don't know, he said, holding the steering wheel with both hands. How much is it worth to you, Rico? When he didn't answer, she held his wrist. I will give you $2,000 for each month. 2000 he said as he turned. How do I know you're not lying? You don't, but I will get the money to you. Come on, Rico. What have you got to lose? I'm good for it. He stroked his stubble again. I cannot get caught. I need your information and I promise 2000 I can use money like that, yes, if I can trust you. She pulled his hand away and looked into his eyes. Only you can make that judgment. Okay, Oswald is part of this group. He's been here several times. I only know what I see in here. They all want to take back Cuba. He came back on the second to Dallas and stayed at the YMCA on North Marcellus Street. What's his game, Rico? He works for the government. I've heard naval intelligence, FBI, CIA. They want to make Castro look bad, and they really want Castro dead. Oswald is just doing his job. He contracts himself out. Makes sense. He also seems to work at places and then he leaves. Oswald, they said, was getting his checks through Western Union. So he doesn't need those jobs, except for other things, I guess. There's something about Oswald and the rest of this Cuban stuff, or they wouldn't have had us following him. He was supposed to go to Mexico, and he was never on the bus. Last Friday, someone pretending to be him, a phony, and a lady who said she was his wife and a two-year-old. He was not shaven, and he wore jeans. This man applied at a radio station for a job in South Texas just because he saw a transmitter on Highway 281. They don't know what he's up to. So now we have two Oswalds. <laughs> Someone named Oswald applied in Pleasanton. He drove a 1953 Oldsmobile, 80 miles to another station and then to Sinton. Contact said he had sandy hair and was dirty looking. It wasn't him. Something isn't right here.
Why are your people following him or the devil? I think they're using Oswald in some way. For what? They do not share that with me. I just know there's a whole trail here. Mechanics at the Hill Machinery Company in Alice gave the same description of Oswald and the car. Then he was in Freer, Texas with a child and his blonde wife. His Russian wife is brunette. See, there are other places with this false Oswald, all in South Texas. Now he's supposed to be in Irving where his wife is staying with a Mrs. Payne. Mrs. Payne moved his wife and child out of Texas. Two more things. There's more. Early this morning, before the meeting, I heard someone from the New Orleans group saying that Oswald is supposed to get another room or apartment in Oak Cliff. The garage is near there. Where's that? In Dallas, near where he's interviewing for work. Another job? Where's that? Book Some state book distribution place. How did he get that lead? He shrugged his shoulders. Mrs. Payne, she said she overheard a neighbor talking about her brother getting a job at the book place, but she's lying. The neighbor never said this. I heard Felipe say Payne was a liar. Payne said she called the book place herself to get Oswald an interview. Why didn't he call? I don't know. Oswald is interviewing for a job there, just like the coffee company in the photographic place, just passing through while he does his work. I guess so, said Rico. There was a lady in Dallas, a Mrs. Penn. She said three men were firing a gun on her property and left a shell on the ground. Oswald, no names, just some Italian rifle shell. Who are these exiles, Rico? Alpha 66, assembled for retaking Cuba and killing Castro. Ah, now I see. Look, what I told you could cost me my life. I understand. I won't write anything down and neither should you. He pointed at his temple. I will write down the 2000 in my head because I believe you will pay me. Good deal. These men are planning something and I'm stuck right in the middle of it. Later in the day, she set down her book and watched President Kennedy's news conference President on the console TV. Kennedy had opened the news conference advocating selling wheat to the Soviet Union and lowering the budget for taxpayers. She leaned forward when he said that peaceful arrangements with the United States were better than isolation and hostility. Then somebody asked him about the CIA in Vietnam. She headed for the kitchen and removed the orange juice from the refrigerator. As the president continued, she looked out the back windows toward the stockade fence surrounding the backyard. Rico had been to the supermarket, but a guard remained in the backyard, pacing along the fence. Another man was stationed at the end of the driveway at the street. She took out a glass and poured the orange juice. The front door opened fast, and Lawrence rumbled inside like a rogue elephant. His clothes were covered with dust, and he carried his automatic weapon. He looked at Sherry, and then the TV. What the hell do you have that son of a bitch on TV for? He stepped into the middle of the room and listened to the president. This is a problem. He is trusting the Russians. Lawrence's eyes opened wide. He turned toward the TV and grunted as he fanned his automatic weapon. Lawrence and Felipe left and the door slammed. The last one here 
Then she looked at the front door and wondered why Lawrence was so out of control. Chapter 48 Biscayne, Florida, October 7th, 1963, 4.30 p.m. Patch slid off the motorcycle and it summarily sped away. The man in the parking lot wore a white fedora and his sunglasses gave him the appearance of a movie star. He stood under the palms and in front of a bright white Cadillac. Three men in military fatigues with M1 rifles followed Patch's every move. Tony Barona. It's been a long time, Patch, since Guatemala. He adjusted his paisley tie and extended his hand to Patch. Patch, in a faded olive t-shirt and combat pants, saw his own reflection on Verona's sunglasses. Johnny Rosselli is amazing for getting me out. They shook hands and walked near a row of palms leading to the pillars at the front entrance. All three men followed them. Did they release you with no problem? I was allowed to go walking with Ray Mankiewicz. The next thing I know, I'm in the bed of a trash truck under a mattress, speeding under the palms. Two guys in a packet hawk jam me in the back seat. We leave the area at over 100 miles an hour. They put me on a motorcycle across town. I'm glad Ray talked to Rosselli. Johnny said you made the right move by having Ray place the call, Patch. He's going to be at the Fontainebleau in Miami later this afternoon. You'll meet with him and then they'll get you to New Orleans. Just keep me away from the government people. <laughs> you and me both. At the elegant Hotel Fontainebleau, Patch and the dark-haired man named Frank Sturgis sat in a booth that overlooked the bright blue Atlantic Ocean. Sturgis had wavy hair and wide shoulders. You were on the beach when Savage was killed by Carlos Sanchez. If you say so. Why are you such a wise-ass, Kincaid? Patch pointed at him as the waiter set down a beer. Because I don't remember anything, all right? Be good to me. I know where your girl is. Patch gritted his teeth. As he started to stand, Sturgis removed a silver-barreled handgun. You do what we tell you to do. Is she all right? I will let Mr. Rosselli answer any questions. If you hurt her, I'll hang you by your balls, yelled Patch as he stood. Sturgis leaned back, still holding the gun, and laughed. Oh, oh, you will, will you? By my balls. Chapter Where 7. Where is she? I don't remember. He replied and continued to laugh. Patch sat down. Bill Harvey, in a light suit, exited the elevator and carried a briefcase outside. Bill Harvey. Sturgis tipped the glass of scotch, and look what happened to Bill. He risked his life heading Task Force W. Everyone sacrificed to kill Fidel, while you were with Fidel. I don't know what you're talking about. Sure. And how did they reward Harvey? They sent him off to Europe. Ask Johnny. He knows. He and Harvey are still very close. I don't know anything about it. Harvey called the Attorney General a liar, and it cost him his career. Castro know about the poison pills, Kincaid? Did he? I don't know what you're talking about. I don't think Traficante or Giacana ever thought the plots against Fidel would be successful. And they only told the higher-ups what they wanted to tell them. Like Johnny Rosselli. Let me tell you something about Johnny Rosselli. He backs up what he fucking says. Johnny gave it his all as an American to fight Fidel. Last year, Harvey met Johnny out at the airport lounge. 
Johnny, I'm told, wears alligator shoes and a watch worth over two grand. Harvey whipped his revolver around the table. He had on a wrinkled suit, but Johnny eventually liked him. At first, he didn't trust Harvey. I didn't know that. The operations came out of the CIA Miami place, but then they left for the Keys. See, Johnny had full clearance. He pointed into the lobby at a Hispanic guy who Patch recognized. He had tight, curly, dark hair, a six-footer, and sunglasses. That man is David Morales, El Indio. That man has overthrown governments. After Guatemala, El Indio received a promotion from Dulles himself. El Indio is the most feared man in the CIA. Assassin, counterintelligence chief. No one argues with him except maybe Shackley. I wouldn't think of arguing with him. And Johnny Rosselli went right out on the boats with his men. Ah, shit, he don't talk about it, but he did. He had the boat shot out right from under him, man. He had to swim under fire to another boat some distance away. Some people call him Handsome Johnny. But during the missions, he was Colonel Rosselli. Took out the Dominican president, for Christ's sakes. Bobby Kennedy is trying to shut down Johnny's operations. If Wyatt tapped his phones and followed him around Vegas and L.A. And the worst is the IRS. Johnny says it's murder. The Attorney General is looking for a fight. Like him and Jimmy Hoffa. Jimmy got him in a headlock and would have broken Bobby's neck if Jimmy hadn't been pulled off. A little guy in a lightweight suit stepped up to the table. What is it, Annie? On Sunday, our friend's friend fired a rifle in a field with two guys. Witnesses? Yes, a school teacher. Very good, very good. In the lobby, Rosselli, in a double-breasted blue tweed suit, stood across from a Cuban who Patch did not recognize. Both men sat on a white leather sofa and were engaged in a serious conversation that lasted several minutes. Then Rosselli handed him a piece of paper. Both men stood and the Cuban nodded. He shook hands with Rosselli. The men parted and Rosselli, carrying a black briefcase and followed by John Martino, and two hefty, well-dressed guards entered the lounge. Rosselli signaled for Sturgis to leave and then called out something to the waiter as he swaggered over to the Oceanside booth. Patch, said Martino. Mr. Martino. Patch wiggled out of the booth and stood. You're looking good, Patch. He shook Patch's hand and then turned to Martino. John, have the aerials of the plaza ready. I will, Johnny. As Martino left, Rosselli motioned Patch back into the booth. The waiter arrived with a Smirnoff over ice. Rosselli thanked him and set his briefcase on the horseshoe-shaped seat. Thanks for getting me out. My pleasure, Patch. After Army Intelligence on your tail, I know you're a guy who can carry the load. You and Sherry did exactly what you were supposed to do. He placed his hand on Patch's wrist. Sherry is in a house in Dallas. She's fine, but she needs to stay there under guard until this thing is over. Just trust me. Nothing will happen to her. When we can, we'll get her out. With all due respect, Mr. Rosselli, I, I understand, Patch. When Johnny Rosselli says he'll get her out, then he will get her out. Now you've got it. He looked into Patch's eyes for several seconds. This man, Dr. Moon from Barton College. 
He attacked me in Mexico City. I know. He's lurking around New Orleans looking for you and your girlfriend. I have people alerted to get rid of this lunatic once and for all. He seems determined to kill us. I'll make sure you're armed. You'll be placed in an extremely safe location, but you can't take chances. And by the way, those blood samples they took in Miami. Yes? I was simply told that those government boys will be getting pig blood when they look under their microscopes. Thank you. Piacere Mino. Roselli popped the briefcase and removed a yellow pad. Under the yellow pad was a paper with a typed message. Patch only saw part of the message for a few seconds. Once the Mexico City mole search commences, any investigation of the matter will be non-sequitur in our lifetime, or maybe ever. Why expose everything for the sake of an asset? Waiter brought a gold and ivory phone over to the table. This is John. Yes, I'm fine. Do you want me to go, Mr. Roselli? asked Patch. Roselli shook his head, took out the pad, and wrote as he listened. Yes, I have it. At the farm in Northern Virginia, right. No message. Thank you. Interesting you were in Mexico City, said Roselli as Patch looked at him and not the briefcase. I was threatened with death. I understand that, but you should have called me. I know. Don't ever for the rest of your life admit that you were there or know anything about it. And do not let anyone threaten you again, Patch. You call me. Yes, sir. You may be contacted by someone coordinating things in New Orleans. Attorney Gill? I want to be up front with you, Patch. And you've proven you'll keep your mouth shut. Gill is a contact, but the campaign with DRE is being run by George Joannidis out of the Miami facility. Joannidis is an experienced CIA officer. He worked in Greece against the communists in the 40s. The bottom line is they want to make Castro look bad. Bad enough so we go in and get him out of power. He set down his silver pen on the pad. Patch, I want to keep you working for me when this is done. You mean surveillance? He shook his head and took a sip of the Smirnoffs. Yes, and you're a pilot. I know you are. Yes, said Patch, aware he knew how to fly. I may need you. I just don't know yet. Sure, I can do it. That's what I like to hear. Just don't ask any questions, and I know you can keep your mouth shut about who and what you might see. I can. You'll no doubt run into Jack again. Jack is a punk. Tell him nothing about our relationship, and don't listen to his mouth. He's got IRS problems, and he has to take care of them. Just excuse yourself and stay clear of him. Let me say one final thing, Patch, before my meeting. Sometimes there are reasons why things are done. Maybe someday you'll understand why, maybe not. But in the world I live in, loyalty is paramount, and betrayal is unforgivable. He closed his briefcase. Then he stood and shook Patch's hand. With his drink on the table, he carried his briefcase across the restaurant. The powerful David Morales, still sporting sunglasses, stood with the rotund Bill Harvey in front of the lobby fountain. The bulbous red-nosed Harvey had bulging eyes, smoked a cigarette, and had a drink in his left hand. Roselli appeared again with a shorter man with glasses, dressed in a light-colored suit. Patch recognized him as Traficante. They shook hands with Harvey and Morales. 
They exchanged words, laughed, and then disappeared out the front doors. Location unknown. Dallas, Fort Worth, Texas, Wednesday, October 16, 1963. Lawrence and the goateed man named Skip from Tampa re-entered the house. Lawrence stared at Sherry, sending her heart pounding. That 30-odd six is in L.A., said Skip. The one Hemming modified. Let me know when Mitch Warble gets the silences. You know a man named Moon, asked Skip. Why, asked Sherry. It's after Patch Kincaid in New Orleans. Lawrence twisted his mouth. We don't even know where Kincaid is. Outside, said Lawrence, and they exited through the front door. Rico raised his dark brows as the men left. Sherry moved up to her Cuban friend. When do I get out of here, Rico? I'm sick of reading. I'm sick of being inside. I'm sick of these people I don't know. You have to be patient with them. My patience has run out. Oswald, what about him? You heard them. He's working at that book place. He started today. Sherry crossed her arms and pinched her chin as she thought. Another temporary job while he does something else. Why do they care where he's working? I'm not sure, but he took a job in North Beckley. I heard that too. There is a safe house like this place out behind North Beckley. Oswald's wife is in Irving with a Mrs. Payne. Right, she took the wife back from New Orleans. I wonder why the split. Like you say, he's doing other stuff behind the scenes, but I'm not sure why. She saw Lawrence and Felipe on the front lawn. What do you think's going on here, Rico? They keep talking about making Castro look bad, some kind of incident, like the pamphlets Oswald handed out in New Orleans. She fell back on the sofa. Why do they need me here? They think you have a connection with this guy who shot up the bank in El Paso. I don't. I don't know what their game is with you, Sherry. Oswald is doing everything he can to look like a communist. She pinched the bridge of her nose. He's under orders. I'm sure someone is telling him what to do. No one can figure out Oswald. He lived in Russia. I heard someone say the CIA sent him there when another fake defector disappeared, and they're still controlling him. When he and his Russian wife arrived here in Dallas, a CIA man, Mr. Moore, J. Walton Moore, called this man George de Morinstel, a CIA asset. His job was to get Ruth Payne in charge of the Oswalds. In September, de Morinstel requested all information on Oswald from the 502nd Military Intelligence. I don't know why. What do you mean? Then de Morinstel, they call him the Baron, held a party that brought Mrs. Payne together with the Oswalds. Mrs. Payne befriended Oswald's wife, but she would not let Oswald live at her residence. She called to get Oswald the job at the school book depository. Uh, the high-paying job requests came in for Oswald, but Mrs. Payne turned them down. I heard all this. She is responsible for Oswald not being allowed to live in her house while keeping his wife there. Mrs. Payne, she has all of Oswald's possessions in her garage. Outside, Lawrence waved his arms as a red pickup rumbled over the lawn. 
Skip in jeans and a t-shirt got out of the truck. Someone kicked at the front door and three Cubans she did not recognize rushed inside. A few seconds later, Skip was inside the house. Okay, let's go. What's the matter? asked Rico. Lawrence wants you two in the truck now. Why? They shoved him toward the door and took Sherry by the arm. Don't question it, Rico, she whispered, and they pulled her out the door. Maybe I'm finally getting out of here. Rico gestured toward the truck. Auto exhaust hung in the warm air. Lawrence pointed an M1 rifle diagonal to the sky. What did you do to this Moon character? asked Lawrence. He's dead. Moon has located this house. How? Lawrence moved her and Rico inside the truck. He talked to somebody in New Orleans. Why would I tell him where I am? Where are you taking us? Lawrence started the truck and did not answer. The truck tires squealed at the corner of Harlandale Ave. He banged the steering wheel. His red face reflected in the rear mirror. You ask a lot of dumbass questions, lady. The red pickup bounced along the asphalt. The trim greens at the golf course bordered an elongated reflecting blue pond that paralleled Bar Harbor Boulevard. Lawrence's face convulsing like a frothing animal turned in front of the slightly larger ranch house on the quiet street. He shifted the truck and spun into the concrete driveway. A Cuban walked forward. Have you got the woman? Of course. Don't piss me off. He shut off the truck but did not shut off right away. This piece of junk. Kincaid just left Miami. I talked to them. Oh, thank God, said Sherry. Is he all right? Lawrence snarled. Who cares? She closed her eyes because she had wondered if Patch was dead. Now what? They are going to want answers about Moon, said Lawrence. He opened the driver's door. We can't have that stupid bastard messing things up. She moved with Rico out the driver's door, followed by Felipe. Sherry walked up with Rico along the concrete driveway. They entered the cooler house. Lawrence stomped to the green phone on the hall table. He placed a collect call to Miami, screamed into the phone, and demanded that someone kill Moon. He kept repeating that Moon was going to ruin their operation. Then he had to wait. Rico handed him a thin red bottle of Schlitz beer. He popped the cap with a metal opener and then looked at Sherry. She shook her head as he guzzled the beer. Yeah? Well, where is he? Lawrence gripped the handle of his 45. I will blow this fool's head off if he's in Dallas. I don't give a fuck how smart he is. I don't care who he knows. We'll kill the bastard. He tilted the bottle up and finished off the beer. You tell Howard to call me. He hung up the phone. What did he want us to do? Asked Felipe. Lawrence thought and slowly set down the bottle. You stay here with Rico and the woman. We're going back into town. I don't want this train to go off the tracks before Chicago. He nodded at the Cubans and two of them followed him to the front door. Felipe threw the keys to Lawrence. The door slowly closed and the deadbolt turned from the outside. Felipe opened a kitchen drawer and pulled out a 22 caliber handgun. He placed it in Shari's hand. When in doubt, lady, shoot! Dr. Richard Feynman interrupts the flow with a discussion of the possibility of time travel. This also ties in the time travel mechanism of the book and Mankiewicz's work in the future. I deliberately kept important generals like Lansdale and Cabell at a distance 
as the study of time travel would be ludicrous to both men. Patch Kincaid is on a collision course with President Kennedy and the events of November 22, 1963. I'm Robert P. Fitton. See you next week. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.